Chapter Eleven of An Eye for an Eye by William Lequeux. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tom Weiss. Chapter Eleven Beauty at the Helm. Together we stood on the lawn near the river bank gossiping, and as I looked into Ava's flawless face, whereon the expression had now become softened, I longed to tell her the most sacred secret of my heart. Had she, I wondered, recognized in me the man she encountered in St. James's Park when on that mysterious errand of hers? What could have been the nature of that errand? Whom did she go there to meet? One fact was at that moment to me more curious than all others, namely her friendship with Mrs. Blaine, the woman who, according to the landlord, rented that house of mystery. By the exercise of care and direction I might, I told myself, learned something which would perhaps lead if not to the solution of the enigma then to some clue upon which the police might work but to accomplish this i should be compelled to exercise the most extreme caution for both mother and daughter were evidently acute to detect any attempt to gain their secret while it seemed more than probable that eva herself if actually aware of the affair which was of course not quite certain had some motive in keeping all knowledge of it concealed. Who, a hundred times, I wondered, was the man who, after lingering opposite Buckingham Palace, had entered the house in Ebury Street? Without doubt Ava had gone to the park to meet him, but it seemed that, growing impatient, or fearful of recognition by others, she had left before his arrival. True, the police had watched the house wherein the man disappeared, but up to the present he had not been seen again. Boyd had told me, when I had seen him that very morning, that he had left my some exit at the rear, and that his entry there was only to throw any watcher off the scent. It was evident that the man, whoever he was, had very ingeniously got clear away. Dick, who was playing tennis, at last came forward to be introduced to my divinity, and presently whispered to me his great admiration for her. I was about to tell him who she really was, but on reflection felt that I could act with greater discretion if the truth remained mine alone, together with the secret of my love for her. Therefore I held my peace, and he, in ignorance that she was the missing victim of that amazing tragedy, walked at her side along the water's edge, laughing merrily and greatly enjoying her companionship. Mrs. Blaine invited us all to dine but the Moberleys were compelled to decline, they having a party of friends at home. Therefore we saw them off amid many shouts, hand-wavings, and peals of laughter, and when they had gone we sat again on the lawn, now brilliant in the golden blaze of sundown. It still wanted an hour to dinner, therefore Mary suggested that we all four should go out on the water, a proposal accepted with mutual enthusiasm. As I was not an expert in hunting, Mary and Dick pushed off in the punt, the former handling the long pole with a deftness acquired by constant practice, while with Ava Glasslin in the stern of a gig I rolled up my sleeves and bent to the oars. The sunset was one of those gorgeous combinations of crimson and gold with which those who frequent the Thames know so well. Upstream the flood of crimson of the dying day caused the elms and willows to stand out black against the cloudless sky while every ripple caused by the boat caught the sun-glow until the water seemed red as blood. A great peace was there, 
Not a single boat was in sight, not a sound save the quiet lapping of the water against the bows and the slight dripping of the oars as I feathered them. We were rowing upstream so that the return would be easier, while Dick and his companion had punted down towards Chertsey. For the first time I was now alone with her. She was lovely. She had settled herself lazily among the cushions, lying back at her ease, and enjoying to the full the calm of the sunset hour, remarking now and then upon the beauty of the scene and the charm of summer days upstream. Her countenance was animated and perfect in feature, distinctly more beautiful than it had been on that well-remembered night when I had found her lying back cold and lifeless. How strange it all was, I thought, that I should actually be rowing her there, when only a few days before I had beheld her stiff and dead. Alone with no one to overhear, I would have put a direct inquiry to her regarding the past, but I feared that such question, if put prematurely, might prevent the elucidation of the secret. To get at the truth I must act diplomatically and exercise the greatest caution. I sat facing her, bending with the oars, while she chatted on in a voice that sounded as music to my ears. I love the river, she said. Last year we had a houseboat up beyond Bolter's, and it was delightful. There is really great fun in being boxed up in so small a space, and one can also make one's place exceedingly artistic and comfortable at very small expense. We had a ripping time. It is curious, I remarked, that most owners of houseboats go in for the same style of external decoration, rows of geraniums along the roof, and strings of Chinese lanterns. Look at that one over there. Yes, she laughed, glancing up in the direction I indicated. I fear we were also sinners in that respect. It's so difficult to devise anything new. And she added, Are you up the river much? No, I responded, not much, unfortunately. My profession keeps me in London, and I generally like to spend my three weeks' vacation on the continent. I'm fond of getting a place at other cities, and one travels so quickly that the thing is quite easy. There are always more girls than men up the river, she said. I suppose it is because men are at business and girls have to kill time. We live down at Hampton, not far from the river. It's a quiet, dead-alive sort of place, and if it were not for boating and hunting it would be horribly dull. And in winter? Oh, in winter we are always on the Riviera. We go to Cannes each December and stay till the end of April. Mother declares she could not live through an English winter. This statement did not coincide with what the innkeeper's wife had told me, namely that the Glaslands were much pressed for money. I spent one season in Nice a few years ago, I said. It is certainly charming, and I hope to go there again. But is not our own times, with all its natural picturesqueness, quite as beautiful in its way? she asked, looking around. I love it. People who have been up the Rhine and the Rhone, the Moselle and the Lure, say that for picturesque scenery, none of those great European rivers compare with ours. I believe that to be quite true, I answered. Like yourself, I am extremely fond of boating and picnicking. We often have picnics, she said. I'll get mother to invite you to the next, if you'll come. Certainly, I answered, much gratified. I shall be only too delighted. We were at that moment passing two fine houseboats moored near one another, one of which my companion explained belonged to a well-known city stockbroker, and the other to a barrister of repute at the chancery bar. 
both were gay with the usual geraniums and creepers having inviting-looking deck-chairs on the roof and canaries in gilded cages hanging at the windows shall we go up the backwater she suddenly suggested it is more beautiful there than the main stream we might get some lilies of course i answered and with a pull to the left turned the boat into the narrower stream branching out at the left a stream that wound among fertile meadows yellow with buttercups and where long lines of willows trailed in the water i was hot after a pretty stiff pull therefore when we had gone some distance i leaned on the oars allowing the boat to drift on under the bank where the long rushes waved in the stream and the pure white of water-lilies showed against the dark green of floating leaves heedless of the rudder lines eva leaned over and gathered some trailing her hand in the water how quiet and pleasant it is here she remarked her calm sweet beautiful face showing what a great peace had come to her at that moment it may not have been quite in keeping with the covenances that she should have gone out like this alone with me a comparative stranger yet girls of to-day think little of such things and she was nothing if not modern in dress speech and frankness of manner we were far from the haunts of men in that calm hour of the dying day indeed already the crimson of the sun was fading into the rose of the afterglow and the stillness precursory of nightfall was complete save for the rustle of some water-rat or otter among the sedge or the swift flight of a night-bird across the bosom of the stream the shadows were changing and the glow in the water was turning from one color to another the cattle had come down to the brink and wading to their knees whisked the flies away with their tails as they slowly chewed the cud yes i agreed there is rest perfect and complete here how different to london ah yes she answered i hate london and very seldom go there except when necessity compels us to do shopping why do you hate it i asked at once pricking up my ears have you any especial reason for disliking it well no she laughed i suppose it's the noise and bustle and hurry that i don't like i'm essentially a lover of the country even theatres concerts and such like amusements have but little attraction for me i know it sounds rather absurd that a girl should make such a declaration but i assure you i speak the truth i did not doubt her any one with an open face like hers could not be guilty of lying that statement was in itself an index to her character she possessed a higher mind than most women and was something of a philosopher truth to tell this fact surprised me for i had until then regarded her as of the usual type of the educated woman of to-day a woman with a penchant for smartness in dress freedom of language and the entertainment of the modern music-hall in preference to opera i was gratified by my discovery she was a woman with a soul beyond these things with a sweet lovable disposition a woman far above all others she was my idol in those moments my love increased to a mad passion and i longed to imprint a kiss upon those smiling lips and to take her in my arms to tell her the secret that i dared not allow to pass my lips she leaned backwards on the cushions her hands were tightly clasped behind her head her sleeves fell back showing her well-moulded arms her sweet childlike face was turned upward with her blue eyes watching me through half-closed lids her small mouth was but half shut she smiled a little it entranced me to look upon her 
for the first time the loveliness of a woman had made me blind and stupid i wanted to know more of the cause of her dislike of london for i had scented suspicion in her words nevertheless through all she preserved a slight rigidity of manner and i feared to put any further question at that moment thus we rested in silence dreaming in the darkening hour i sat facing her glancing furtively at her countenance and wondering how she had become a victim in that inexplicable tragedy by what means had she been spirited from that mysterious house and another victim placed there in her stead all was an enigma insoluble inscrutable to be there with her to exchange confidences as we had done and to chat lightly upon river topics all gave me the greatest gratification to have met her thus was an unexpected stroke of good fortune and i was overjoyed by her spontaneous promise to invite me to one of their own river parties joy is the sunshine of the soul at that restful hour i drank in the sweetness of her eyes for i was in glamour-land and my companion was truly enchanting we must have remained there fully half an hour for when i suddenly looked at my watch and realized that we must in any case be late for dinner the light in the wild red heavens had died away the soft pale rose pink had faded and in the stillness of twilight there seemed a wide profound mystery we must be getting back i said quickly pulling the boat out into midstream with a long stroke yes the blains will wonder wherever we've been she laughed mary will accuse you of flirting with me would that be such a very grave accusation i asked smiling ah that i really don't know she asked gaily you would be the accused but neither of us are guilty therefore we can return with absolutely clear consciences can't we certainly she laughed then after a brief pause she asked why did you not bring mary out in preference to me why do you ask i inquired in surprise well it would be only natural as you are engaged to her engaged to her i echoed i'm certainly not engaged to mary blaine aren't you she exclaimed i always understood you were oh no said i we are old friends we were boy and girl together but that is all her great blue eyes opened with a rather bewildered air and she exclaimed how strange that people should make such a mistake i had long ago heard of you as mary's future husband then again we were silent both pondering deeply had this remark of hers been mere guesswork was this carefully concealed question but a masterstroke of woman's ingenuity to ascertain whether i loved mary blaine it seemed very likely to be so but she was so frank in all that i could not believe it of her no doubt she had heard some story of our long past love and it had been exaggerated into an engagement as such stories are so often apt to be soon we emerged from the backwater into the main stream and with her bow set in the direction of Laleham, i rode down with the current without loss of time the twilight had fast deepened into dusk the high poplars and drooping willows along the bank had grown dark though the broad surface of the stream eddying here and there where a fish rose was still of a blue steely hue and far away upstream only a long streak of grey showed upon the horizon the stars shone down in the first faint darkness of the early night presently i glanced behind me and in the distance saw a yellow ray which my companion well versed in river geography told me it was a light in one of the windows of riverdean 
it had grown quite chilly, and the meadows were wreathed in faint white mist, therefore I spurred it forward and soon brought the boat up to the steps. I knew that the world now held nothing for me but Ava. When we entered the dining-room, a fine apartment with the table laid with shining plate, decorated with flowers, and illuminated with red-shaped candles, we were greeted, as we expected, by a loud and rather boisterous welcome by Dick and Mary. We were, of course, full of apologies, being nearly half an hour late. But up-river dinner is a somewhat movable feast, so Mrs. Blaine quickly forgave us, and while I sat by Mary on her one hand, Dick seated himself at Ava's side. Gaily we gossiped through a merry meal, washed down with the real Burncastle, and followed by old port, coffee, and coyaco. Yet my mind was full of strange apprehensions. What possible connection could these three women have with that crime which the police were withholding from the public? That they were all three aware that a tragedy had taken place seemed quite clear. Yet all remained silent. I had detected in Mrs. Blaine's manner an anxiety and nervousness which I had never before noticed, yet I refrained from putting any further question to her lest I might by doing so show my hand. She could not keep from her tone when she spoke to me a note of insincerity which my ear did not fail to detect. Our conversation over dessert turned upon dogs, the performances of Mary's pug having started the discussion, and quite inadvertently Dick, whose mind seemed always centered upon his work, for he was nothing if not an enthusiast, suddenly said, "'Dogs are now being used by the police to trace criminals. There is no better method when it can be accomplished, for a bloodhound will follow a trail anywhere with unfailing accuracy, even after some hours.' "'Do they actually use them now?' asked Mrs. Blaine in a strained, faltering voice, her wine-glass poised in her hand. "'Yes,' he responded. "'They've been utilized with entire success in two or three cases this week not only in London but in the provinces also. They are unfailing, and will track the guilty one with an accuracy that's absolutely astounding. Ava and Mary exchanged quick glances across the table, while Mrs. Blaine sipped her wine and stirred uneasily in her chair. I noticed that the color had died out from the faces of all three, and that in their blanched countenances was a look of mingled fear and suspicion my friend had led that conversation with remarkable tact to quite an unlooked-for result. He lifted his eyes to mine for an instant and read my thoughts. My mind became filled with a presentiment of future ill. End of chapter 11 Recording by Tom Weiss, Tom's Audiobooks.com